Okay, good morning everyone. Welcome back. It's great to have you with us here this morning uh, for the seminar stream Clear Christianity where we're looking at a period in church history called the Reformation. Uh, 500 years ago this year is the anniversary of the start of the Reformation. Uh, if you've been here in the previous couple of days when I've been speaking and Andrew was speaking yesterday, uh, we've been talking about a character named Martin Luther who is indeed a key figure of the start of the Protestant Reformation. And we've been drawing out uh, lessons from, from his life, but from the truths that were rediscovered in the Reformation, which uh, we have to acknowledge a very different time to where we live, even though from Christ's day to ours, uh, the Reformation is closer to us. There's still uh, radically, radically different uh, cultural waters that they swam in and that we swim in. We said uh, that it was a time when most people would self-describe as Christian, Whereas nowadays, uh, people might use that term in a very loose and flexible way um, and would be more likely to not self-describe as Christian. Nevertheless, the same uh, principles apply to us as did to them, even though the situation is quite different. So the Protestant Reformation occasioned the split between the Protestant Church and the Catholic Church in the West, and we talked a little bit about that yesterday. And um, we're looking at the truths that were rediscovered as uh, Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, John Calvin, those people started formulating ideas of the faith in language that people could understand. It had been stuck in Latin and a lot of the common people didn't speak Latin. And these truths became very important to just com common people who didn't realize that you, that you commune with God in a direct and immediate way because of what Jesus Christ has done. And these truths are kind of linked together. Scripture alone is what Glenn Scriven is coming to speak to us about tomorrow. But the point there will be that the truth of the gospel is found in the word of God. So having the word of God in your own language becomes a very important thing. From, from the scriptures you read that salvation is by faith alone and grace alone. Grace alone being God giving a gift to you completely freely and faith alone is what uh, Charlotte's going to come and speak to us about here this morning and she's talking about how we accept that gift really how we put trust in the God the giving God uh, on the first day I was speaking about how both of these points of the head Christ alone Christ alone and uh, all of these have some overlap you'll notice that as we go through and on the last day, I'm going to be speaking about how the whole of life is lived to the glory of God alone and that salvation itself is to the glory of God alone. So before I hand over to Charlotte, I just want to um, remind you of this book chapter that we have here. If any of you didn't get a copy of this, um, this is the chapter from the forthcoming book, Rooted, Reconnecting with the History of the Church. And doing what we're doing in this seminar, i.e. applying the history of the church to life today and how, uh, how we can learn from what God's done over two millennia of Christian life. Um, there's copies that are going to be at the front here. Also, I just draw your attention to the inside back page, which I believe gives you an opportunity to do pre-ordering. You can pre-order online and get the whole book it's very reasonably priced. Um, so, yeah, at 10ofthose.com, you can actually pre-order and get hold of this book for those of you who are interested. It's going to be a great book. 
and it's called Rooted by Edward Rose. Okay, without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Charlotte Jones, who happens to be my wife as well. And uh, I'd like you to make her feel very welcome. She's got a great session planned for you, and she's going to explain it to you. Charlotte, come on. Okay, good morning, everybody. Oh, I'm going to trip over this wire. Sorry, let me just sort out. Right, so today, um, as Tim said, we're going to be talking about sola fide, which is um, by faith alone. So salvation by faith alone. Um, so I put the scripture on here from Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And this um, scripture is just going to underpin what we're going to speak about today. And really, what we want to um, answer today is the question, how can we approach a holy God when the Bible tells us that we are inherently sinful? So that's the question I'd love us to try and um, grapple with today. So if you've been in this room for the past two days, you'll have had a little bit of information about the Reformation um, from Tim um, and from Andrew yesterday. So... um, just a quick recap, just to say that this would have been a time where most people in Europe would have self-identified as being Christian. So quite different from our culture here today. Um, we're looking at how the Bible teaches that salvation is by grace and through faith alone in Jesus. But at this time, the church began to introduce kind of different ways of, of gaining salvation. So Andrew talked yesterday about the fact that they were starting to sell pieces of paper called indulgences. And the belief was that if you bought one of these pieces of paper, you could rescue a family member from purgatory. That basically you could start to buy your salvation. And within there, there was a bit of corruption as they were trying to raise money to build a big church in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. So it became slightly corrupt. We start getting this idea of um, needing to go through mediators to get to God um, and just lots and lots of different things that put lots of things in the way of people really being able to come to the God that made them. So culturally, we're in quite a different place. I don't know about you, but not many of the people that I'm around would say that they're a Christian. That's quite different. There's lots of things in our culture that would kind of be taking that place. So the first question I would love for you to talk to a friend about or um, the person sitting next to you um, is this one. Oh, I've got this. I've got to do this. Sorry. Ooh. So the, what I'd love for you to discuss is what are people's major objects of trust and security in our culture? So basically what I'm asking you is, so before people were putting faith in indulgences, they were putting faith in religion, they were putting faith in ritual. Actually, what things do we in our culture put our faith in? Um, and that will be different maybe for if someone's a Christian and if someone's not a Christian. So yeah, if you could turn to the person next to you, I'm going to give you a few minutes to discuss that. And as Tim did on Monday, if you were here, if you um, have an answer, we'd love just a few people to be ready to come up to the front and share it on the mic if that's possible. So, um, so have a think about it and then I'll ask for a few people to come up. Thanks. So off you go. Two minutes. Does anyone here feel brave? And would anyone like to come up and have a go answer this question? So what are the major people, what, what are people's major objects of trust and security in our culture? Any volunteers? Okay, so I think one of the things is um, it, people put their trust in their role. So um, in, you find some people, don't know, they, they work all their lives and then they retire and then they die. Or they retire and they don't know what to do with themselves and it's because they put their security in their, in their role, in their place. And you can find it in churches where sometimes you ask them to stop doing something and you find out that they started doing it for Jesus but actually after a little while they've put their security and their place in the church in the role that they're doing in church and when you ask them to stop they kind of fall to bits and, <laughs> and you've got a pastoral problem to sort out. 
That's brilliant. That's great. Yeah, so a lot about what we do um, and our identity based in kind of what we're doing rather than who we are. Anything else? I'm thinking like a lot of the younger people that I think we put our like trust in like technology as well. We put our trust in the fact that we've got a phone and we know that's going to like phone someone if we need it. And we put a lot of trust in things that we like can't control as well, even though we want to. So technology, that kind of being a security blanket, anything else anyone's got? Maybe for non-Christians um, or people that aren't as secure, maybe their appearance, so what they look like. Um, so if they know that they look good, then they have more um, like self-confidence and that they can do more if they look nicer. That's great. Yeah, definitely. It's a big one, isn't it? And when I was thinking of this, I thought of, quite a, I thought of a few things like friendship, popularity, money, success legacy you know people want to be remembered don't you? that whole fame culture people put their trust in wanting in, in them in being remembered and people knowing who they are and then there's that whole thing of kind of karma of being a good person and doing things that you know it, actually if I do all the good things if I do good things somehow that's going to make me okay and even in faith itself do you hear that sometimes it's like oh it doesn't really matter what you believe in as long as you believe in something that's all right there's quite a lot of things but definitely appearance as well so how we look how we're perceived all things that um, we put our faith in. And so just like the Reformation then, we have this underlying faith issue that we, we put our faith in, in different things other than, other than what the gospel says, which is that we, we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Um, now, so we're adding things to this good news, aren't we? We're adding things onto this good news. And actually that takes away from the good news. So we're trying to add things, but actually it's taking away. Um, and I want to explore this a little bit more by going back in time into the Reformation. And today we're going to be looking at a hero, or rather I should say a heroine of the Reformation in England. Because um, I want to tell you the story of Lady Jane Grey. Okay, so Lady Jane Grey was, um, lived between 1537 to 1554, and she's best known as being England's shortest reigning monarch. She was on the throne for nine days, so not long at all. And also what makes her incredibly interesting as well is that at the time that all of this happened, she was a 16-year-old girl going on 17, so actually a very similar age to most of you in this room. So, so salvation, we found, came to Germany through a monk who hammered some things on a door, and as Andrew mentioned really briefly yesterday, it came to Switzerland through a bunch of middle-aged men and a sausage supper. And now, in England, the Reformation comes to England through a king who wanted a divorce. So I think most of us in school probably would have talked about Henry VIII. So he was on the throne between 1509 and 1547. And what we generally know about Henry VIII is that he had a lot of wives, and he generally liked to get rid of them fairly quickly. Um, so... We know that about him. And the context for that was that he wanted a son. So um, in England at the time, the, the, the crown went from father to son. So he would have been first in line to the throne. So his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, who actually Andrew mentioned yesterday, she was from um, a Catholic background from Spain. Um, and he was married to her. She had a daughter, Mary. But she didn't deliver the son that Henry VIII really wanted. Now, so that posed him a problem. His problem was, what do I do about this? This lady's getting older, she's not provided me the heir, but how can I now get out of this marriage? Because there's no such thing as divorce in the Catholic Church, it was completely not permitted. Um, so Henry reached this problem, he wrote to the Pope and said, look, can, we get, can I get an annulment, can I, can I somehow escape this marriage? And the Pope basically declined and said no. So what we then have 
1534 is the Act of Supremacy, which brought about the Anglican Church. So Henry basically said, right, you're not going to give me the divorce I want, so I'm now going to draw on these ideas that are going around Europe, and I'm going to start a new church in England, the Protestant Church, the Church of England. Um, so basically, so he could have a divorce. So God works through all sorts of things, and in this case, he worked through a king who wanted a divorce. So we fast forward a little bit, and Henry does get an heir, Edward VI. But unfortunately, Edward VI does go on to, does um, succeed um, Henry VIII, but he dies um, prematurely in 1553. He was a sickly boy, and he died in 1553. Now, Edward, like his father, was a Protestant. Now, we have a little bit of a problem, though, for people around the throne at this time. Edward was a Protestant. Mary, who would have been next in line, well, we know Catherine of Aragon was her mother. Catherine of Aragon was divorced and shamed. She was from a Catholic background. She had a bit of a grudge, and she was a staunch Catholic. And those around the throne at the time, they didn't want Mary to be on the throne. So what they decided was is that they'd pass the throne to a distant relative. So basically, they... Lady Jane Grey, who at this time has just got married, so not only is she 16, 17, she's just got married, but she suddenly is told, out of the blue, that you are now going to have the throne. You are now going to be put on the throne as the next queen. Um, Now, this was a problem as well, because although it was a preferable choice because she was Protestant and not Catholic, there was a really strong belief that the throne should be passed along the bloodline. And Jane was not in the bloodline. So even a lot of the Protestants didn't really support her. So it was a problem. And Mary I, who was really entitled to the throne, according to the bloodline, she mounted a kind of a, a plea to kind of take the throne. And she did that. So Jane was on the throne for nine days. And then Mary I took over as the Queen of England. And now Jay, uh, Mary, who obviously is a bit miffed by all of this that's gone on, she should have been put on the throne next. She's overlooked for Jane. And then she's kind of managed to get enough support that she takes the throne then takes, sends Jane to the Tower of London um, for being a traitor. So she's 16 going on 17, she's just got married, she's just been made queen, and then nine days later, she's taken to the Tower of London. And this signature, Jane the Queen, which you can see there, which is her original signature, is actually used as evidence of her, of her being a traitor, that she would um, call herself queen. So, and then, so she's taken to the Tower of London. So as you can see... That's the Tower of London then and now. It looks a very beautiful place. If any of you have been to London, you might have visited it. But at the time, in 1550s, Protestant ministers were taken through the traitor's gate, and many of them would never see daylight again. They were taken and they were beheaded um, and martyred for, for being Protestant ministers. So she's taken to the Tower of London, and at 17 years old, she is martyred. So a bit of a roller coaster for Jane. Probably more action than EastEnders or most of the soaps of your choice. So how does this lady end up being a notable figure of the Reformation in England? Because nothing I've told you about her so far, other than the fact that she's a Protestant, hints that she's somehow significant. Now, Jane, was, she was an ordinary girl in many ways, but she was a very, very intelligent girl. Now, not many girls in England at this time were educated, but her family believed in education, and she was educated. But more than that, she taught herself. She taught herself Greek so she could read the Bible, so she could read the New Testament. And um, at the time, she was also um, writing letters, kind of like fan mail, to a guy called Henrik Bullinger, who was um, an 
he was in Switzerland and he was one of the people that had been kind of, so Zwingli was involved in the Reformation in Switzerland. He was kind of like the next person who took over the, the church there in Zurich after Zwingli. So he, so she was writing to him and basically what she wanted to know was how to learn Hebrew because she learned Greek, she could read the New Testament. Now she wanted to learn Hebrew so she could read the Old Testament. And considering the Bible is only available in English kind of around, 40, well, it's only written in English in the 1300s. It's only available in the, by the printing press in the 1476. So her Bible knowledge would have, I guess, been quite unusual. Other than that, the Bible was preached in Latin and was not very accessible to people. So she was an intelligent girl. And just to encourage you, actually, she, she spent time studying and learning, just an encouragement, actually, just to take hold of learning. It's so important, um, just finding out. I think the story of Jane Grey would have been very different had she not studied. So I just want to say that as, as a bit of an aside. So what happens then is Mary I, who's known as Bloody Mary, which in many ways was very fair because a lot of people died under her reign. But in the case of Jane, actually, she didn't really want to execute her. So that's Mary I there. She didn't really want to execute her, so she decided to send her archbishop, Feckenham, who has possibly the best name ever, to go to prison to try and persuade Jane that she's mistaken in her Protestant views, to try and persuade Jane that actually she could be a Catholic, she could avoid death, and she could be set free. Now, Feckenham himself, actually, interestingly, had been in the Tower of London under Henry VIII because he was a Catholic, and Henry VIII didn't particularly like Catholics. So he kind of, he came with this kind of agenda of trying to help Jane, but also really of trying to catch her out a little bit. So he, so we start this conversation between um, Feckenham and Jane, and it's actually quite well recorded. So they start off talking about what is it required, what is required to be a Christian and they turn quite quickly to belief in God. But also, he's trying to catch her out. He keeps saying, but, but it's not just belief in God, right? But what else? What else is there? Um, and he tries to say, you know, surely we need to do more than believe in God, to believe in Jesus for salvation. And I'm just going to read a little bit of this interview. So Feckenham goes to her and he says, Why then? It is necessary to salvation to do good works, and it is not sufficient to believe. So Feckenham's there going, no, but you, you do have to do something, right? It's not, it's not just good enough to believe. And this is Jane's response. I deny that. I affirm that faith only saveth. For it is meet for all Christians in token that they follow their master Christ to do good works. Yet may we not say, nor in any wise believe, that they profit to salvation. For although we have done all that we can... Yet we are unprofitable servants, and the faith we have only in Christ's blood and his merits save us. So she's saying, it's only by faith that we are saved. She's saying, you know, we can do all sorts of things, but they don't profit to salvation. They don't, you know, you can do all sorts of things, but it doesn't add up to salvation. Salvation is only through Jesus. And if we think that we can do that, if we think that we can add up our good works or add up our righteousness or add up our rituals, and it means that we're saved, then we're gravely mistaken. She says we're unprofitable servants. For Jane, the gospel was, is good news to her. She was prepared to die for it. Um, she was confident in her standing before God and the promise of eternity to the point that she could face death. Now, Jane was also a lover of scripture. So actually, the reason that she kind of doesn't get caught out by Feckenham is that she keeps pointing him back to the scripture. She keeps saying, but where do you see that in the Bible? Where do you see that in the Bible? Um, and Glenn's going to be talking more about that tomorrow in terms of actually 
our need to know our scriptures and 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 um, salvation through uh, scripture alone as well and believing in the scriptures. So let's have a look at, um, at a section in Romans to see where she gets these ideas from. So Romans three twenty one to twenty six. So if you've got a Bible, you might want to have a quick look because we're going to be looking at this um, for a little bit. So Romans three twenty one to 26. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the prophet, to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness is given in faith, given through faith in Christ Jesus. I think this might be the wrong way around. I'm just going to read it from here, actually, for a minute. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. I know it's the right order. I just missed a bit at the beginning. Sorry. So, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus by Christ Jesus. I'm just going to do it from here, sorry, because I'm going to lose it. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So, I'm just going to take it to the end of this. So, what do we learn from this scripture? So first of all, it's probably important that I unpack a few words for you. So what does the word justification mean? We hear that quite a lot in this passage. And it basically means to declare righteous, to make right with God. And what's our righteousness? Or what is righteousness? It's the perfection of God, his pure holiness. So the first thing we need to know is that we need justification. So the, the scripture tells us that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. In other places in scripture, it talks about, about us being enemies of God. Um, and the bad news is, is that, you know, we think, oh, the law, it says at the beginning, therefore, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become, become conscious of our sin. So people think, oh, you know, the law was given so that we might be able to obey the law and somehow... Li- <coughs> And somehow become holy, somehow become acceptable to God. But we're told in this passage that actually the law was introduced not to help us get closer to God, but to actually show us how sinful we are. We cannot fulfill God's perfect, holy standard. The law just shows us that. You know, in the past they were doing sacrifices for sins. When they disobeyed the law, they would do sacrifices for sins. And it just made them realize that they were having to do sacrifices all the time because we can't do it. We can never fulfill God's perfect holy standard. And the good news is, is that we were never intended to. We were never intended to. We are justified not by doing all the right things. We are justified through Jesus Christ. It's God's initiative. He did it from the start. He loved us from the start. And he sent his one and only son, his, his perfect, holy, obedient son, 
um, to die on the cross so that all our sin could be placed on him and all his righteousness could be given to us. We can be forgiven. Christ took all our sin, all our punishment, and in his place we receive his righteousness as a free gift, as we heard at the beginning, a free gift, grace, by faith in Jesus Christ. Um, And actually, at this point, I'd love to just read a little bit from a book on the Reformation. I'm just going to get this up. Just about, actually, what faith really is. And I love this quote when I read it. It just made my heart glad. So, faith is a conscious acknowledgement of our own unrighteousness. And, on that basis, a looking to Christ as our righteousness. A clasping of him as the ring clasps the jewel, so Luther. I love that when it says that, so Luther. It kind of makes me think that's so Luther. That's just what he'd say. A clasping, the ring, a clasping of him as the ring clasps the jewel, so Luther. A receiving of him as an empty vessel receives treasure, so Calvin. And an, a, a reverent, resolute reliance on the biblical promise of life through him for all who believe. Faith is our act, but not our work. It is an instrument of reception without being a means of merit. It is the work in us of the Holy Spirit who both evokes it and through it engrafts us into Christ in such a sense that we know at once the personal relationship of sinner to saviour and disciple to master and with that the dynamic relationship of resurrection life communicated through the Spirit's indwelling. So faith takes and rejoices and hopes and loves and triumphs. And that's the truth of our faith in Jesus, isn't it? The one who's, who's now in heaven, who sat down at the right hand of the Father and said, it is finished. He's done it all. We don't have to do it. We don't have to work for our salvation. He's done it. We just put our trust in him, our unswerving trust in him. Now, I wanted, when I was preparing this, I just felt as well, though, it's, it's so important, isn't it, that when we talk about faith, that we talk about what our faith is in. So often as a culture, we talk about having faith, but that can mean all sorts of things. We need to know that our faith is in Christ alone, and actually, we need to be really single-minded about that. Now, Andrew Wilson, who spoke to us yesterday, a while ago, I saw him do this amazing demonstration, which unfortunately, because all the tech in this room does not belong to me, I cannot do this morning. But basically, he had this very expensive iPad. Obviously, Andrew Wilson has lots of iPads knocking around that he was prepared to do this. He had an iPad, and he got someone holding something else, like, you know, an ice cream or something else. And what he did was he threw the iPad. Luckily, the person was somewhat awake, But what you realized is that as soon as he threw the iPad, you had to drop the thing you were holding to catch this precious iPad. Now, that's what's a bit like with faith in Christ. We need to be single-minded about our faith in Jesus. We cannot be holding on to faith in other things and also have faith in Christ. So just like if I chucked an iPad at you right now, you'd probably scramble whatever you were holding to catch it so that it didn't smash into a thousand pieces. It's like that with our faith in Jesus. We can't be holding on to loads of other things and say that we have our faith in Jesus. We have to let go of those things in order to take hold of this amazing truth that he's given us. Um, Sorry. And the other thing was that when I was um, preparing for today, I just felt really reminded of a story in in the book of Matthew. Okay, I'm going to have to leave that one. But basically, what I was, can you, is the picture of the, um, that's the one. So I was really reminded of a story in the book of Matthew about people who build. Um, Now, 
Some of you might know this story about the person who built on the rock and the person who built on the sand. Many, most of us know the story, don't we? So one man, he builds on the rock. One man, he builds on the sand. The rain comes up, the floods come down, and the one on the sand goes splat, and the one on the rock stands. Um, it's a bit like the story of the three little pigs, where they go out and they build their houses. They build it out of straw, out of sticks, out of bricks. And the whole time you're there going, why would you build a house out of straw? The wolf is going to blow that down in a minute. Why would you build it out of sticks? That's never going to last. You've got to build it out of bricks. Silly, silly pigs. Okay, It's that kind of thing where you're like, why would you build a house on sand? Why would you do it? And we sing so many songs about it, don't we? On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. You are the rock of ages. Nothing else is strong to save us. All other ground is sinking sand. Of course it is. And yet, and yet, what is it about sand? So we know that if we're building on the rock, we're basically saying we're building on the foundation of Jesus. We're building on him and who he says he is and all the things he taught about himself. And the sand is when we, we, we know about him and we maybe don't really build on him. We might know about him, but we build on other things. Now, what is it about the sand that makes it so appealing? And I was thinking about that when I was looking at this picture. I was like, you know, the rock's there. It looks okay. The sand, though, wow. That's where I want to go on holiday, by the way, Tim, next year. Um, So the sand, it looks great. Why is it so appealing? And I kind of got to the conclusion that I think it's because it's a bit grainy and it's because there's so much of it. Now, I don't know about you. I'm assuming that most of you in this room will have probably had to take exams really recently. Now, I'm going to out myself now. I used to be a secondary school teacher. I'm sorry. But not anymore. It's okay. I've put that behind me. It's past. Um, But I remember at this time of year when people are taking GCSEs and A-levels, and I remember from when I was taking GCSE and A-levels, the one thing that people always came to say to you is, so what's your your backup plan? So you're doing your GCSEs, you're choosing your A-levels. Okay, so you want to do these A-levels, but what happens if you don't get the grade? What what else are you going to do? Or you're you're doing your A-levels, you're looking at an apprenticeship, or you're looking at university, and someone goes to you, yeah, but what's your backup plan? What happens if that doesn't work out? And what I want to say is faith in Jesus is single-minded. Actually, we can't have a backup plan. We can't have a plan B. And that's quite a scary place to be, isn't it? We're saying, actually, we need to have our eggs all in one basket. We need to put all our faith in Jesus. Um, and I think that's, that's a bit uncomfortable sometimes for us. We want to have our faith in lots of different things. Just to the people in the Reformation, they believed in Jesus. They believed in the cross. But there were other things that started to distract them, other things that they put their faith in. Because just in case... Jesus wasn't quite enough. But I want to say to you this morning that Jesus is sufficient. We don't need a backup plan. And, and that may mean sometimes being uncomfortable in this life, because actually we're promised an eternal life. And just like Jane, you know, actually she died for this truth of believing that faith in Jesus was the only way. Now, I don't think many of you in this room are being asked to die for your faith in Jesus right now. But actually... It happens all the time, doesn't it, where we have to choose. Do we trust Jesus or do we put our faith in a few different things? We might still be trusting Jesus, but actually, do we have other things that we put our faith in? Am I putting my faith in Christ's righteousness or am I trying to earn God's approval by doing lots of good things? Am I trying to put things in place so that I'm, I'm kind of working my way to him, that I might be more acceptable in his sight? Well, we're told, aren't we, that our finest efforts are like dirty rags. Actually, we cannot, we cannot earn our way to him. So what is this all about? Why, why is this so important? We talked about, in the first session, we talked about how the Reformation was about reclaiming the joy of the gospel. 
didn't we? We talked about how actually it's the joy of the gospel that the Reformation is all about reclaiming. And actually, what the result of this is, is, is that we're free. Salvation comes as a gift from God, grace, through faith, and not by works so that no one can boast. We are free. It says um, in Galatians 5.1, It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And Jesus says in, in Matthew 11.29, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, what do you notice is that it seems like we're always going to be yoked to something. Now, in case you haven't ever seen a yoke before, this is what it means by a yoke. So not the yellow thing in the middle of an egg, but this thing. Now, basically, so it's two cattle that were, were kind of bound together, so they're kind of pulling together, so they're sharing the load. Now, we're told, really, that we're going to be yoked to something. We're going to be yoked to something. So we can choose to be yoked to slavery, to the law, to being, to, to being subject to the law, to trying hard, to working hard, or we can be yoked to Jesus, whose yoke is easy and his burden is light. We're going to be yoked to something, so do we choose to be yoked to, the, to slavery and not live in the freedom that God's won for us? Jesus gave his life so that we might be free. Or do we yoke ourselves to Jesus, the only way? We're told in Isaiah as well, it, the invitation is there. He says, come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. All you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. He's saying it's a free gift. This morning, if you feel like, oh, I just feel weighed down, I just feel in, in drudgery, I feel like this Christian life is hard, then I'd just love to say to you, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And actually, perhaps this morning, it's a case of coming back to him and saying, I trust you again. I trust you with my life. I trust you for my salvation. I do not have to work hard for your approval. Now, culturally, we're not very good at believing anything is for free. Um, I've just had a baby eight weeks ago. She's super cute, by the way. If anyone sees her around, she is really cute. Um, I think so. You might not. Um, But actually, one thing you find when you have a baby, and you might find this in the years ahead when you have your children, um, that suddenly when you have a baby, people email you with loads of free offers, and you see them, and I'm like, yes, this is free. It's going to be brilliant. It's something I don't really need, but who cares? It's free. And um, you click on it, and then you realize it's like, oh, you have to sign up to Quidco, or you have to sign up to Top Cashback, and you have to buy this many rolls of toilet roll before you get your free bottle or whatever it is you're after. And I love it even here today. As soon as um, someone says, oh, look, there's a free book, at the end, everyone's like, run, quick, go and get my free book. But actually, often, there are strings attached. But this just so isn't the case with our justification. Our righteousness is given through Jesus Christ for all who believe, and it is given as a completely free gift. Okay, hear that this morning. A completely free gift. Now, could you um, flick on? Now, I'm just, this is a picture of me as a teenager. Not so much. Now, probably most of you won't have seen this because it was out in 2000, and I'm not advocating it as a brilliant show, okay? But this is like a character of my youth. Her name is Vicky Pollard. Um, she is from a show called Little Britain. And basically, she, she gets, someone says to her, Vicky, did you do your homework last night? And she kind of stomps in and she's like, oh, yeah, but, yeah, but, no, but, yeah, but, no, but. And that's basically what she does. She kind of says, yeah, but, no, but. Um, and that's kind of our response to this, isn't it? When we hear about the freedom, the gift that God's given us, we're like, 
Yeah, but, no, but, yeah, but, no, but. Because actually, it just seems too good, doesn't it? It seems too good to be true. So now I've got some questions for you around this. And they're coming up here. So, yeah, but, does that mean as a Christian that I need not do any works? Okay. Does that mean as a Christian that I need not do any works? Now, I think Andrew touched on this slightly yesterday, but I would love you to have a little chat about that. So if I'm saying to you, you are completely free, does that mean I don't have to do anything? Does that mean that actually I don't really need to, to do anything in terms of following Jesus? I can just be free and know my salvation is secure. And then the no but. But does becoming a Christian mean that I have to change my life? Does it necess- necessitate life change? So I'm saying to you, oh, you can become a Christian this morning. You could put your faith in Jesus this morning and know that you are saved by Jesus' righteousness. You could immediately go, no, but are you not, not going to tell me in 10 minutes that I'm going to have to completely change my life? That's kind of the essence of the question. So I would love you to discuss that again with friends. And in a minute, I'm going to ask again if a few brave people can come up and share some answers. Okay, if I can draw you back in together. Great to hear so many people talking about this. So, would anyone like to come up and offer us um, any kind of answer to either of these questions? You can do both, you can do one, it's up to you. Um, well, I think that because, like we were saying about grace, you, you're saved, it doesn't matter what you do. But because you're saved, you know so like how good God is and how awesome he is and what he's done for you, that you just don't want to live like how you were living before. Not because you have to, because that will make God angry, but just because like, your life has been changed and it just doesn't feel right. Great. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. So because we received his grace, actually we don't want to stay the same. We've received his love. Anything else? Yeah. I also feel like um, just because, yeah, just because you're saved doesn't mean you have to stop doing everything like that you were doing. But like just because we read about so many people in the Bible and what they've done, like because they believe in God, like, it makes me want to go out, like, do missionary work, stuff like that. Okay. Like, yeah, great. So kind of inspired by the stories you hear that actually we can, do, we, can, we can do great things for Christ by his grace. It's by his grace, isn't it, that we do things, yeah. Um, this makes me think about the thief on the cross next to Jesus, as in he's nailed to the cross. He's about to die. There's really nothing he can do anymore. But he just admits that he does deserve this punishment. And therefore, Jesus saves him. Like, there was nothing he could do to earn it. He was already dying. But just admitting that he needed it earned his salvation. So I think these things aren't necessary in order for you to be saved. But through that, they're an inevitable fruit that will come from it. Great. Brilliant example. Yeah. That last moment, he couldn't have done anything, but Jesus, he believed in him, believed in his righteousness, and he was, and he was saved. But yet, yeah, but actually, because of, because of the fact that, we, again, it's that thing, isn't it? We're so overwhelmed by what God's done that it bears fruit in our life, and that, and that comes about in, our, in the way that we live. Anything else? Okay. Well, I'd love to take us back, um, actually, to um, Lady Jane again. So for the first question, does that mean as a Christian that I need to do any good works? So Feckenham kind of goes for this question as well. He says to her, is there nothing else required in a Christian but to believe God? So he's basically saying her the same question. Is there, is there nothing else that you need to do? And Jane says this, yes, we must believe in him. We must love him with all our heart, with all our soul and all our mind and our neighbor as ourselves." 
And then she goes on to say, how can I love him I trust not? Or how can I trust him whom I love not? Faith and love ever agree together, and yet love is comprehended in faith. And I think what she's getting at here is actually what um, some of you guys have just said, and that is that actually because God first loved us, because God took the initiative, because God has given us this new righteousness in Christ, actually we can't help but be be transformed by that. She talks as well about, um, about actually following our master. She says before, it is meat. So this is in the last quotation I read to you, right back at the beginning. It is meat for all Christians in token that they follow their master Christ to do good works, but that's not what they say, that, that's not what saves you. Because we're overwhelmed by the love that we have for God, because God loved us and our heart's response is we love you, we trust you. Actually, what follows is that we want, we want to be followers of Jesus. We want to be like him. We want to follow in his footsteps. We want to listen to him. But that's not what saves us. That's not what saves us. That's part of our loving relationship with Jesus is that we want to be followers of him, but that isn't what saves us. So it's a bit of a both and. It's still a bit of a like, it's a tension, isn't it, that we have to hold. But actually, we need to know that salvation is by faith alone. And now for the second question. It's quite, it's quite scary, isn't it, when you think, or oh, if I put my faith in Jesus today, what, what does that mean for my life? And what I'd love to say to you today, if you're thinking, if you're thinking, actually, I, I believe this is true. I really, I believe this in my heart. I believe that actually Jesus died for me and that I can know his righteousness as my own. What I would say to you is, that's all that's asked of you. That's all that's asked of you. Um, in uh, Matthew 6, it says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Now, this is talking about provision, but actually provision of all things. All these things will be given to you as well. Um, the other summer, we were driving around a lot, and we um, were reading a book, which is called The Secret... Th- well, actually, we were listening to it. We were in the car. The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by Rosaria Butterfield. And this is basically a book about her story. She, said, you know, she talks about how she was the least likely person to want to put her faith in Jesus. Jesus. But she started um, corresponding with a pastor. You know, she was a tenured professor at a university in America. She was pretty sorted with her life, but she started corresponding with this pastor. And she just realized that Jesus was true. Um, And that meant, and over time, you see how Jesus, her faith in Jesus, her faith in his righteousness, gradually does transform her life but she definitely doesn't go in thinking right I've got to change this I've got to change this I've got to sort this I've got to sort this and Jesus doesn't ask us to do that he asks us to put his our faith in him and he will by his grace do work in our lives as we love him he'll change our hearts now I wanted to finish with um actually a little bit of a letter that Jane wrote so she's about to go to the block to have her head chopped off, which is slightly gruesome. But she's about to die. And what she does is she writes a letter to her sister that she puts in a Bible. So her parting gift to her sister Catherine is this letter in a Bible. And she says, Now is touching my death. Rejoice as I do, my dear sister, that I shall be delivered of this corruption and put on incorruption. For I am assured that I shall for losing of a mortal life, win one that is immortal, joyful, and everlasting. 
the which I pray God grant you in this most blessed hour and send you his all-saving grace to love in his fear and to die in the true Christian faith from which in God's name I exhort you never swerve neither through hope of life nor fear of death. So her parting words to her sister are basically saying your salvation is by faith alone. It's by grace through faith alone in Jesus. Hold fast to that. Don't be distracted. Even if it means costing you your life, even if there's a hope of life or a fear of death, don't let go of this truth, this truth of the gospel. Um, And we can do that again this morning. And in a minute, I'd love to invite you just to stand because I'd love to pray for us. Um, I'd love to pray for us that we're able just to put our faith fully in Jesus again this morning, that we can be single-minded in the faith, in the faith that we have, um, and knowing that actually it's not by works. It's not by works. It's not by pleasing God today. It's by putting our faith in Jesus. I just want to put us back to that first scripture. So, for it's, been gra- it's by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God not by works, so that no one can boast. Lord Jesus, I thank you for being with us here this morning. Lord, I thank you for the sacrifice you get. You gave yourself on the cross. You took all our sin. We were enemies of God. We were dead, and you took our sin, and you gave us your pure and perfect righteousness that we can be brought back into relationship with the Father who made us. Lord, I thank you so much for such a precious gift. Lord, I pray like Luther says that we'd be the ring that clasps hold of this jewel this morning. Lord, I pray that if there are things in our lives where we've maybe tried to earn your favor, we've tried to do it our way, we've tried to put our faith maybe in lots of different things rather than fully in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I just pray that you just reveal those things in our hearts this morning. Lord, that we might know the freedom that comes from the gospel, the freedom and the joy that comes from the gospel of knowing that it was for freedom that you set us free. And this morning, I just pray that you would bring freedom about in our lives again. Lord, I pray as we trust you, as we say maybe in our hearts right now, Lord, I trust you, I lean on you, I choose to follow you. Lord, I just pray that you just bring about the freedom and the joy of the gospel in our lives. And Lord, I pray for my friends in this room too who maybe don't know you, who maybe this is the first time maybe they've heard about you, that it's the first time that they've understood that you um, have, have won their salvation for them. Lord, I just pray now, Lord, that you would help them just to trust you. You'd help them to put their faith in you, to receive that free gift of God, free gift this morning of grace. That means that we can be called children of God, that we can know this freedom. Lord, I pray for those friends. I pray even now, Lord, they'd be speaking to you. They'd be putting their trust in you and, and just pushing aside all other things, Lord, just to follow you. Lord, I thank you just for being with us here this morning. And I pray, Lord, that you just continue to speak to us through the rest of this series. I pray continue to speak to us through the meetings today in your mighty name. Amen.